0: Of you today. I'm so glad you're here. Yes, you're in a live group. You're already clapping and nobody's even had to prompt you. That's good. It's good to see you here. Welcome. Great to have you here. Those of you who are watching online, so good to have you with us as well. We are starting a brand new series today called The Grave Robber, and I want to begin by asking you a question Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You know, if you were to ask that question to people out in your community, your spheres of influence, you'd get all kinds of answers to that. In fact, I encourage you sometime to do that. Just go do a little survey of your own. Ask people, who's Jesus to you? And you'll hear people say things like, well, he he was one of the greatest prophets that ever walked on the earth, or he was one of the greatest teachers that ever walked on the earth. Or for some people, they say, well, I don't know who Jesus is. To me, he's nothing more than a curse word. And so people have all kinds of ideas as to who Jesus is. But who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Well, I know that you would say that Jesus is God in the flesh, right? How many of you would say, yeah, Jesus, that's, that's his God, and he is in the flesh? And some people would say that uh, Jesus is God incognito, okay? He, he came to this earth, and he was disguised as a carpenter for so many years. And, and some of you would say Jesus is the miracle worker, and, and all of those things are true. And, and I'm excited about this series because we're going to be looking at Jesus and the miracles that he performed. And I'm excited about this series and because I just know, I just feel in my spirit that, that God has some miracles that he wants to do in the lives of people in this church over the course of the next seven weeks that we're going to spend this time together. And I believe God has some miracles that he wants to do in the life of this church and some things that he is preparing us for. And so I'm excited about this, and so I want to begin by by just Helping us understand, as we kind of lay the foundation for this series, as we talk about miracles, you know, the Gospels record uh, 34 distinct miracles that Jesus performed. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John de- de- describe 34, but we know there were a lot more than 34, more than the Bible records. In fact, the Bible says there were more than what could be recorded. In the Gospel of John. Are seven miracles that he records, and those are the seven that we're going to focus on in this series. And th- these miracles, they they seem to go from like like easy to difficult, or from impossible to impossible. List, okay, and and they go from hard to hardest. Although in God's economy, there's no such thing as a difficult miracle. A miracle is a miracle, but for us, it can be a little bit difficult. But Here's a question I want to ask you. Do you need a miracle? Do you need a miracle? I want you not to be embarrassed, not to be ashamed, but if you need a miracle, I want you to raise your hand right now. Just raise your hand if you need a miracle. Good. You're the bravest of the audiences so far today that that you, you recognize that you need a miracle. Honestly, I think all of us Need a miracle at some time or another, but another question I want to ask you is this: Do you believe that God can perform your miracle? Yes. do you yes, yes, good. I hope this isn 't a live audience today. Uh, I, I like that. thank you. Just just keep on, just keep on bringing it now in this series. This is more than just a study of the miracles of Jesus. What we're going to be looking at is Jesus the miracle worker, okay? And I want us to see that because here's a word of caution for you. Don't seek miracles. Seek Jesus. Don't seek miracles. Now, I know I asked you just a moment ago, do you need one? I don't want you running out of here looking for your miracle, What I want you to do is to seek Jesus, because if you can learn to seek Jesus, if you'll follow him long enough, if you'll follow him far enough, you'll find yourself in the midst of miracles. You'll find yourself there. Now, the interesting thing is, most people want a miracle. Most people will say, yeah, I need a miracle. The irony is, most people don't want to be in the situation that necessitates a miracle. Why is that? Here's why. Write this down. Every miracle begins with a problem. Every miracle. Look at the miracles that Jesus performed. Every one of them, they start with a problem. Let me ask another question. How many of you have a problem today? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you are sitting next to that problem right now? Okay. How many of you need a big miracle? Okay. The bigger your problem... The bigger your problem, the greater the potential for a big miracle in your life. I mean, take, for example, the wedding at Cana, the miracle we're going to look at today. Were it not for the problem, then the miracle worker would never have had to show up. But because there was a problem, they were poised for a miracle. And I'm suggesting that a lot of you are poised for a miracle today. And you need a miracle. And I'm praying and I'm believing that God will do a miracle in your life in this series. A moment ago, I asked you if you believe God could perform your miracle. And I suppose that depends on whether or not you even believe God does miracles today or not. Because some people don't. Some people don't believe that that Jesus is in the miracle working business today. Uh, Thomas um, um, Jefferson Okay, one of our former presidents. You know, I cheated most of my way through high school and school and and skipped a lot of it. So he was a president, I know, but when? Does anybody remember like third, right? Third president. Okay, I just want to be sure that, that we got that straight. Thomas Jefferson, he appreciated the teachings of Jesus immensely, but he didn't believe in the miracles of Jesus. In fact, what he did, he took his Bible, and he took a razor blade and scissors, and he cut out all of the miracles to where if you were to read the Gospel of John, for example, when you come to the end of the Gospel of John in his Bible, it ends with Jesus being in the tomb, the stone rolled in front of the tomb, because he doesn't believe that he resurrected from the grave. He didn't believe in the miracles. Now... I suppose if you follow that kind of a Jesus, then you have perhaps a a somewhat wise Jesus, but a very weak Jesus. And a lot of people today follow a Jesus that's very kind and very compassionate and maybe even wise, but he's weak. And he cannot do anything for you. And so my question is, do you believe that God can perform a miracle in your life. One of the boldest statements that Jesus made was in John chapter 4, or 14 rather, in verse 12. And it's in this verse that he says, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And read the rest of this with me. And they will do even greater things than these. That sounds almost like blasphemy, doesn't it? except for the fact that Jesus himself said it. So what does he mean? Well, I believe what Jesus means is that if we follow him, then we're going to do what he did. We're going to put the, the desire of the Father first and foremost in our life. That, that will be most important to us. We're going to care for poor people. We're going to, every opportunity we get, we're going to, we're going to point people to God. We're going to offend religious people along the way, and I think you're going to be an eyewitness to miracles. In fact, I think not only will you be an eyewitness to miracles, I think that you are positioning yourself to where you can actually be a catalyst for a miracle. Everybody say the word catalyst, a catalyst, okay? Believe me when I say you are someone else's miracle. You are someone else's miracle. Have you ever looked at yourself that way? I dare you to turn to the person sitting next to you and say, you are someone else's miracle. You're someone else's miracle. Make no mistake about it. Only God can perform miracles so that he gets all of the glory. But as you will see, nearly every miracle has a human element to it. Sometimes maybe you need to be like the priest of Israel who had to step into the water before God stopped the water and piled it up in a heap so that they could walk across on dry land. Some of you may need to be like one of the four men who carried the guy on the stretcher to the house and lowered him down through the roof so that he could receive his miracle. You may be one of those people. Some of you may be like the person by the pool of Siloam and you've been uh, hoping and praying, and, and, but you couldn't get in the pool and, and you need a miracle and you need to cry out. To God, But there's a human element and this is what I want you to see. Write this in your notes. Sometimes you have to do the natural before God does the supernatural. Sometimes you have to do the natural before God does the supernatural. Now, as we talk about miracles, I want to give you a couple of warnings. There are a couple of hurdles that you may have to clear in order for you to track with me in this series and to even believe that God could possibly do a miracle in your life. One of those hurdles is skepticism. Skepticism. Our natural tendency is to explain away things that we can't explain. And I can understand why you may be skeptical when it comes to miracles because all you have to do is flip through enough religious channels on tv and you see enough charlatans and false teachers to conclude that it's all a hoax and you kind of throw in the towel on believing that there are miracles today there's a fine line between discernment and skepticism discernment is is being able to filter what is false with the help of the Bible and the Holy Spirit. And so you may need to filter what's false out there today with the help of God's Spirit and with the help of the Bible. Skepticism, on the other hand, is this. Skepticism is a predisposition toward disbelief and is prejudiced by A past event. In other words, you're you're skeptical because you're already predisposed to not believe it. Because of past events or circumstances. I could give you personal examples in my life where I I could be very skeptical of miracles because of things. But I don't have near the time to go into it. And so what happens is skeptics will tend to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Let me encourage you not to do that. Don't don't do that. If if something doesn't pass the filter test with the Bible and the Holy Spirit, then spit it out. But don't let the existence of what is false keep you from believing what is true. Skepticism. The other one, and I fear this could be the one that could throw a lot of people is disappointment. In other words, you don't believe in miracles because you've been disappointed in the past. I know in an audience this size that I could talk to a number of you who have prayed for God to do something, and not only did he not answer your prayer, you're beginning to wonder if he heard a word of it at all, and you're disappointed. And and I would encourage you, don't throw in the miracle towel. Just because you've been disappointed. Listen, I don't know why God doesn't answer some prayers. I wish I I did. I really do. I wish I knew why God says yes to some prayers and why he says no to others. I really wish I knew the answer to that. But I don't. And I'm not God. And what I do know is that God knows a whole lot more than I know. God sees a whole lot farther than I see, and he understands a whole lot more than I understand. I'm, I'm grateful, really, that God hasn't answered all the prayers that I've prayed, even though I think he should have answered them another way. I'm glad Debbie Clark didn't want to marry me, okay? And that, you know, I'd lost interest in her, and, and along came my wife now of 40 years. But there's so many things in, in the past to which, you know, I don't know why they turned out the way they did. But it hasn't stopped me from believing in miracles because miracles happen every single day. Miracles happen every single day. I'll prove it to you. How many of you feel as if you are sitting still right now? Raise your hand if you feel like you're sitting still. Okay, most of you feel like you're sitting still. Some of you are spinning around. I'm not sure what you had to drink before you came in here. (laughs) But most of you feel like you're sitting still right now. That is an illusion of miraculous proportions because whether you know it or not the earth on which you are living right now this planet is spinning on its axis at a speed of a thousand miles per hour you're spinning around right now a thousand miles per hour did you know that i don't you know i, I love roller coasters i'll ride any roller coaster in the world but I don't like to get on those spinning top type things because it makes me throw up. I don't even feel nauseous right now, but I'm spinning at 1,000 miles per hour right now. Every rotation is a spin, and it takes 24 hours a day to make an entire rotation at 1,000 miles per hour. That's pretty stinking fast. Not only that, check this out. Planet Earth is being hurled through space right now at a speed of 67,000 miles per hour. We're hurling through space at 67,000 miles per hour right now. That's pretty daggone fast. It's so fast, it's 87 times faster than the speed of sound. That's the speed at which we are traveling right now. So even on days when you don't feel like you got much done, don't forget that you did travel 1,599,790,300 miles through space. No wonder you feel tired all of the time. (laughs) You ever wonder, why am I so tired? That's a lot of space travel. Okay, you have a right to be tired. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you thanked God for making that last orbit? I mean, I'll bet nobody in here has ever said... (sighs) God, that was close. I didn't think we were going to make that 24-hour spin that time. We came up almost short. No, you haven't given it a second thought, have you? When's the last time you thanked God for keeping the earth spinning on its axis? My guess is never. And the thing is, we we don't have any problem trusting God for all of the big miracles out there like keeping this planet in orbit at 67,000 miles per hour. We don't have any trouble believing that. The irony is we have trouble believing God for the smaller miracles, like healing a sickness, like opening a door of opportunity, like removing a mountain of debt, like saving a marriage, From divorce. I mean, stop and think about it for just a moment. Compared to keeping the planets in orbit, how big is your dream? How big is your problem? How big is your God? And we don't trust Him for those kinds of things. I know people, and so do you, who say they've never experienced a miracle. That's just ridiculous. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is you have never not experienced a miracle. You've never not experienced a miracle. You are surrounded by miracles. In fact, you are one. I don't have time to even go into the human body. I've got a bunch of notes here I'm not, even, I'm not going to go into. I don't have time. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 14. You knit me together in my mother's room. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Every moment of every day, we experience the miraculous on a micro and a macro level. And yet we many times don't even recognize it. And the greatest of miracles that you experience every day is the one you see when you look in the mirror. There's no one like you. You are unique. You're the greatest miracle. Now, with that in mind, and and with that to kind of set us up for going into this series, The Grave Robber, let's talk about the miracle, the first miracle that Jesus performed and the first one in the Gospel of John. It's it's in John chapter 2, the waiting at Cana. And I want to draw some very valuable life lessons from this that I think will help us as we begin to take this journey through these miracles. In John chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, on the third day, and I think there's significance even to that right there, but we don't have time to talk about it. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. I've been there. If you were to go to Cana today, this is what you'd see. You'd you'd see this building, this church that's been erected over the place where they believe this wedding feast took place. Okay, this is a church that commemorates that. And in fact, I've been there several times. I'm going to be back there in March. And if you walk out of this door right here and just go right across the street about 50 feet, there's a little shop where you can buy, guess what? Wine. Isn't that the greatest thing, huh? Now, so I bought this, this is Cana Wedding wine. And so uh, I bought this bottle of wine for Pastor Dave. And I told him, now don't drink it. Don't drink it, because I, t- I, I didn't taste this one, but I tasted the wine that goes in there. It is the nastiest wine you'll ever put in your mouth. It, Jesus did not make this wine, okay? <laughs> this, is, this is not what it talks about. This is not it. That is nasty stuff right there. But anyway, so, so it's in Cana where this takes place. Now, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. You wonder why they were even invited. I've got my opinions, but we don't have time. When the, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Circle that. They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, that's a great sermon right there. I could preach a whole sermon just right there. Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, and each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Okay, circle that, 20 to 30 gallons. Okay, that's how much these hold. Jesus said to the servants, Go fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Underline that phrase, to the brim. Okay, to the brim. And then he told them, now, draw some of it out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did this, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew." Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you had saved the best until now. In other words, Jesus knows how to make wine, <laughs> good wine. Now think about it. For nearly 30 years, Jesus had been working in his father's carpenter shop. For as long as he could remember, he was referred to. As the carpenter's son. Until this day, the third day of a week-long wedding fest when they ran out of wine, that the cabinet maker became the wine maker. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how. It doesn't tell us when. It doesn't tell us where Jesus recognized that he could even do miracles. But you have to know, he must have practiced somewhere along the way. Don't you think? I mean, if I were going to do a miracle, I'd want to practice it to make sure I could do it so I wouldn't make a fool out of myself, okay? You have to know Jesus must have practiced somewhere. I don't know what he practiced. Maybe he practiced making furniture just by thinking about it. Maybe he turned water into milk, chocolate milk. I don't know. But you have to know he must have practiced something because now all of a sudden it's time for him to take center stage. And up until this point, somehow or another, Jesus managed to masquerade himself as a carpenter's son. When what he is, is a miracle worker. It's showtime. And I can just picture the Heavenly Father sitting up in heaven when Jesus is about to do this miracle. And, and I can just picture him nudging the angel next to him, Watch this, you're going to like this. And, and, and so he turns the water to wine and he says, That's my boy right there, you know? And then and and he probably turned to the other angel and said, And you ain't seen nothing yet. You know, he was proud. He was proud like a father would be of his son hitting his first home run. Now, the question is, why this miracle? Why this place? You know, weddings were a big deal in Israel. Uh, A lot of people today go crazy. I I love simple weddings. If you ever ask me to do a wedding, just know I prefer much simpler weddings, not a lot of hoopla. Things go crazy. They get expensive. But anyway, not as bad as they were back in in, uh, Jesus' day there was a protocol that they followed it all started at the bride's home where the the dad would would usher would escort the bride to the groom's home and so they would go take this little stroll through town and all along the way crowds of people would, gang, would, would follow because this was a community event so they would all come that end up at the bride's home and at the front door is where the marriage would take place and then they would go inside and they'd spend a whole week feasting, eating and drinking good food and great wine. I mean how fun is that? And they wouldn't take a, a, a I wouldn't say vacation, they wouldn't take a honeymoon because this, this was kind of it and the, and the groom's family paid for the whole thing. Now, they run out of wine. We don't know why they ran out. Maybe the wedding planner didn't plan it well, or maybe the guest drank too much. I don't know. But they, but they didn't. I remember at my son's wedding, we ran out of punch. And so we had to get a friend to run to the store and, and, and go buy some more punch. Well, that wasn't too big of a deal because what that is is just a little embarrassment. In Jesus' day... For these guys to run out of wine, it was more than just being embarrassed. They would be publicly humiliated. They would have been shamed. It, would have, it was that big of a deal. We, we can't understand that, but it would have been a public shame. I mean, I can imagine these guys. The, the, can you just picture the bride and the groom? They're sitting there at the main table. Word comes to the, to the bride and groom. They're out of wine. And I can just picture them having their first spat. Right there. I can, I can picture the bride turning to the groom and saying, I gave you one job to do. Your job was to stock the bar. We've run out of wine. You know how much your friends drink. Why did you go cheapskate on me at this? I mean, you can just picture the spat and so enter Jesus. Okay. Now let's get into some life lessons. I've got five, I think, that I want to give you, and I am going to give them to you fast. Here's the first one. God cares about the minute details of my life. I find it very interesting that in this first miracle of Jesus, that he didn't save a life. What did he save face? He, I think Jesus must have looked at this beautiful couple and probably hurt for them because he knew the public disgrace for them to run out of wine. And so Jesus steps in and he does something about it. What I I love about this is God is great, not just because nothing is too big for him. God is great because nothing is too small for him. Some of you have some pretty minor things going on in your life. You know what? God cares about those. As I was thinking about this, and I even hesitated to use this, uh, this illustration because I'm not fishing for compliments, but about, about two weeks ago, you know we had these connection cards and people can write whatever they want, want to write. Well, somebody anonymously wrote me a pretty critical note criticizing my teaching and my style and all this stuff. And it kind of bothered me. And you got to know, it kind of bothered me because when, you got to know, when I went into becoming a senior pastor, I prayed. I literally, I got on my knees and said, God, please, would you help me not be a boring pastor? Because I grew up with boring pastors, and I watched my dad sleep through every stinking sermon. When I mean, the moment it started, he would go to sleep. And I said, I don't want that. And so for me to get a note that says, you know, that you know, you're preaching stinks, basically, it's, you know, it's like it kind of bothers me. It's a little thing. It really is a minor thing. But God knew I was just, it was, I was, I was dwelling on it way too much. Well, not, not a day later, maybe two days later, my wife and I went to a local restaurant here. We went in to eat that evening. There were two guys sitting there at the table, both of them like great looking guys, muscular, kind of workout type guys, macho type guys. And they stopped me on the way in and said, Pastor George, we just want you to know how much we we just love your teaching. We just think you are challenging us like, man, you are challenging the socks off of us. And we just love it. Man, keep up the good work. Keep it up. Now, I don't know. If, if God, I know God knew what I was thinking. I know God knew I was dwelling on that way too much. But I don't know if God orchestrated it for us to go to Applebee's. And I don't know if God orchestrated it for those two guys to be sitting there and to say what they said. But somehow in my mind, in the back of all of it, somehow God's performing his own little magic trick. Why? Because he cares about the minute details of your life. God cares about that stuff. And, and so you've got little things going on in your life, minor irritations. God cares about that. Here's number two. God may use me as a catalyst for a miracle in another person's life. Remember, you are someone else's miracle. God may want to use you as a catalyst. If you read between the lines in this story, it seems like Mary is pushing Jesus, and Jesus is resisting. That's what it appears to be like. She wants him to take center stage, and he's not quite ready to do it yet. Maybe he's waiting for a word from his father or something. He seems hesitant, but why? Scholars have debated as to why he seemed to be hesitant to do this. And here's something just to think about. Maybe Mary didn't know that the moment Jesus performed his first miracle, it would would start the countdown clock to his crucifixion. And maybe she didn't know that. I, I don't know. But Jesus knew it full well. He knew that this would trigger the countdown to the crucifixion. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus didn't believe in himself. But what I am seeing in this is that his mother, because of her nudge, she was the catalyst to, to get Jesus to step into his mission, to step into his destiny, to step into his purpose for coming. Now, the reason I say that is this. With five words, Mary nudged Jesus into this. Five words. They have no more wine. That was it. And then, of course, Jesus then responds to his mother, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Okay, now, you ladies out there, you moms, if you've raised kids, if you raise raised sons, how would you respond if you said to your son, Son, take out the trash. And your son turned to you and said, Woman, <laughs> my hour... Why why, why are you you concerned about this? What concern of this is yours? My hour has not yet come. Okay, now, I was raised in the South, okay? I was raised in the South where if I spoke back to my mom, I got slapped up beside the face, okay? I mean, I can just hear me now saying that. I can hear my mom saying, "Oh, oh, no. Oh, no, your, your hour has come all right. <laughs> your, your hour, in fact, your hour is right here now. You better get settled in for about an hour of switching. My mom used to go out in the backyard and take a switch, and she would run her fingers up to, and, and, to, to break the leaves off, and she would tan my legs, and I could just hear her now. Your hour has come all right. So, so what we have to understand, this sounds like Jesus is being horribly disrespectful. He's not being disrespectful. He's not being disrespectful. In fact, you know, we would say mom or something like that. To say woman was actually uh, to be very respectful of of his mother. In fact, he only used this designation one other time, and that's when he was on the cross, and he says to his mom, woman, behold thy son. And so it was actually, it was a a, a term of of respect. And and we notice that Jesus doesn't ignore his mother's request. And nor does he ignore the need of the wedding guest. But this is what I want you to think about. Maybe God wants to use you to nudge someone else into their destiny, into their purpose, into their meaning. Maybe God wants you to be the catalyst for someone else's miracle. I I thought about that and very quickly my mind went right back to I was sitting in my I was I was working on a master's degree at Kentucky Christian University and, and Roy Lawson this is what he said it's etched in my memory this is almost verbatim Roy said for some of you guys if you're ever going to be in a growing church you need to go start your own. I'd never heard it before, I've never heard it since. And it's those words that nudged me into my destiny. And, and I could tell you event after, event after event after event after event after event after event that got me to this place right now. Those words nudged me into my destiny. And, and those words changed the course of my life and in effect change the eternal destiny of hundreds and hundreds of people. Maybe there are people in your life, some of you are teachers, some of you are parents, some of you are coaches. There are people in your life over whom you have influence, and maybe God wants to use you to speak a word to them that will nudge them into their purpose. Into their destiny. I'm not meaning to put pressure on you and and don't get all weirded out over this and and don't feel like I've blown it. No, God gives you one and two and three and four and five and six and a hundred different chances. Okay? He gives you chance after chance after chance. What I'm saying to you is be sensitive to the leading of God's Spirit if He encourages you, nudges you to nudge someone else. In, In fact, honestly, this whole series that we're doing right now, The Grave Robber, you know how, how come we're doing this? Our staff was down at a conference, of all things, called Catalyst. And we were walking through the hallway at the conference, and they're, they're on a shelf of books. I, it just caught my eye, The Grave Robber. And Jeff, Pastor Jeff, happened to be standing next to him. And I said, Jeff, this sounds like it might be a great series to teach at our church. Why don't you get it and look at it, and let's see. And, and, and since then, that was over a year ago, since then, I can't tell you all that's taken place to where I believe God is using this series to position this church for probably some of the greatest miracles that we'll ever face in this church. And I don't have time to go into that right now. But what I'm saying is, you may be somebody's catalyst for a miracle. Here's number three. Don't worry about the solution. Just state the problem, okay? Don't worry about the solution. Just state the problem. It's very interesting when you look at this story and this miracle. It's very interesting when you read between the lines what Mary did not do and what Mary did not say. As a mother, she could have done a lot of things. As a, as a mother, she could have said a lot of things, but she didn't. All she said was, they had no more wine. That's it. They had no more wine, and she left it at that. Here's the point. You don't have to come up with all kinds of words in order to convince God or come up with some, all, all of your words to come up with a solution to your problem. Just state the problem. Oh, if, if, you, if you know the person to whom you should turn, that's all you need to know. It's, it's very interesting. This past week, after reading this and studying this, I, I thought I'm going to just kind of put this to the test. And I have tried really hard this week to not ask God for anything. All I have done is state my situation, my circumstance. For example, driving in Monday morning, I have a group that I meet with at at 7 o'clock. And on the way in, I said, God, I'm meeting with this group at 7 o'clock this morning. And God, later on, I've got a very important meeting with a group of people. And, and, Lord, you know that conversation I'm going to have that's not going to be an easy conversation. And, and God, uh, my son is driving uh, here this, this, this day. And, and, God, my wife uh, has this person to see. Just stating, just simply stating, they have no more wine. That's all she said. Mary didn't try to give Jesus the solution. She didn't try to tell him what to do or how to do it. She just said, they have no more wine. Wouldn't it be great if you and I could just go through our life and we have such a relationship with God that we trust him so much that we don't have to come up with the solution to the problem. Just tell God your situation. God, I'm out of money. God, I'm sick. God, my relationship is falling apart. Just tell him. They have no more wine. Don't worry about the solution, just state the problem. Number four. God shows up when we run out. God shows up when we run out. I love this in verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so, that they, so they fill them to the brim. Remember, there were six jars, right? And they contained somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons apiece. So all together, that means that there was 120 to 180 gallons of wine, okay? Nobody is going to drink that much wine. Why did Jesus make so much of it? Why did Jesus make so much wine? That's just the way God is. He's an over-the-top giver. Everything about him is an over-the-top giver. He gives us way more than we need. Way more than we need. Uh, You see it all through the the, uh, New Testament. John chapter 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Read the rest of this with me. But I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. My wife and I, Ann and I, moved out here to Oregon to start this church. This is the verse we claimed. We we made this our, our prayer verse, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. When we moved here 26 years ago, we could not imagine that, that we would see this many people coming to church. And this is the third service. In fact, when we built this building, in my heart of hearts, it's like, this thing is way too big. We'll never fill this building. We'll never fill it. And you know what? I think we've got the best opportunities ahead of us. This this message series is not designed to set you up for something, but it's very interesting, the timing of this series right now. I believe that Abundant Life Church has the opportunity for the greatest miracles we will see in the life of this church, far surpassing any miracle we've seen in the previous 26 years. I believe that. And I just think it's by God's providence that I'm even teaching this series right now. He can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine in this church and in your life. God shows up when we run out. What are you running out of today? Some of you are running out of money. Some of you are running out of love. Some of you are running out of patience. Some of you are running out of time. What are you running out of? God shows up when you run out. Here's number five. God specializes in transformation. God specializes in transformation. I don't think it's a coincidence that turning water into wine was the first miracle that Jesus performed. In fact, I think it was a foreshadowing of what was to come. At the wedding in Cana, Jesus turned water into wine. And I think there was foreshadowing the Last Supper, where at the Last Supper, Jesus would hold up a glass of wine and he would say, this is my blood that is poured out for many, the new covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Remember I had you to highlight that they, f- they filled those jars to the brim? At the Last Supper, when Jesus held up that glass of wine, the fruit of the vine, It was representative of the grace that he extends to you and to me. That never, ever runs out. God gives you more grace than you could possibly use. God gives you more love than you could possibly use. God extends more mercy to you than you could possibly understand. And and God specializes in transformation. And the greatest transformation is this. It's not turning water into wine. The, The greatest transformation is taking your sin, my sin that's scarlet, and making it as white as snow. So that when I stand before God, He doesn't see the filthiness of my life. He sees my holiness. He sees my righteousness. Why? because of Jesus, the greatest transformation. Read this verse with me. We're going to close with this. This is your your memory verse for this week. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Turning water into wine, that's pretty cool. Jesus, who knew no sin, becoming sin, so that we, who are nothing but sin, could be made righteous. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. I'm going to ask if you bow your head, and if you close, close your eyes, and God transforms. God specializes in transforms. God, God takes hard hearts, and he turns them into soft and pliable hearts. God takes broken hearts, and he turns them into hearts of joy and laughter. God takes dead things and he turns them into alive things. That's what God wants to do for you. He wants to take your life that right now some of you feel like you have no energy, you're depressed, you're discouraged. Some of you feel lost, some of you feel confused. God is a master of transformation. And if you will humble yourself before him, the greatest transformation he wants to do is to bring you from death to life, from lost to to found. And he does that through Jesus, who knew no sin, but became sin, so that we could be the righteousness of God. Today, if, you're, if you've never given your heart to Jesus, and you want to open your heart to him, then I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. And I'm going to ask all of you who have ever made the decision to follow Jesus, if you'd also join with me in this prayer. So would you pray, Father in heaven, today I thank you for Jesus. Jesus, I'm asking you to change my heart. Change it from being cold to being hot for you. Change it from being hard to being moldable. Jesus, take me from death and bring me to life. I surrender myself before you. I pray this in your name. Amen.